Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, hear now the word of the Lord. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Now, verses 12 and 13 have, have exercised many in their, the way it puts it, that as you have always obeyed, so now you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice how Paul urges us to work out our own salvation. And actually, that's the, we saw last time this was a plural here, not just a singular. It's a corporate thing that we do. But it is also God who works in, in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Thomas Aquinas pointed out a long time ago that there are four things that verse 13 rules out in terms of how we, th how we are saved. First of all, it, it shows that man cannot be saved without God's help. After all, it is God who works in us. Without God's help, we are quite literally helpless. So therefore, it must be God who wills and works. But secondly, verse 13 shows that, that our... Our free will is not destroyed uh, because you are called to work out your salvation. You must do that which God calls you to do. But verse 13 also rejects the idea that whereas the accomplishing comes from God, the choice, the willing comes from us. So, so if, if you have to will, what does Paul say? Both to will and to work. It's not that we want to and we just need a little help to make it happen. We only want to, because God himself is at work in us, both to will and to work. And then finally, verse 13 rejects the idea that God rewards us according to our merits. 
No, it's, it's not according to anything in us. It is according to his good pleasure. As John Murray puts it, God working in us is not suspended because we work, nor is our working suspended because God works. Neither is the relation strictly one of cooperation, as if God did his part and we do ours. Rather, the relation is God works and we also work. For it is God who works in you. All working out of salvation on our part is the effect of God's working in us. We have here not only the explanation of all acceptable activity on our part, we have also the incentive to our willing and working. Because the more persistently active we are in working, the more persuaded we may be that all the energizing grace and power is of God. Now, and part of what, what Paul is doing in this whole sort of work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure, is he's setting up for you the perils of grumbling. Because his next line, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Now, I, I, I wish they hadn't translated that questioning. Uh, Dialogismas is more about disputing. I mean, the scriptures always encourage good questions. So the idea that uh, don't, don't ever question anything, that's not what Paul's saying. So rather, the, and especially in the, the, the context and the language that Paul uses here, he's drawing his readers and his hearers' ears to the, the theme of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness, which wasn't just asking innocent questions. It was disputing and grumbling and murmuring and all those bad things. Because Israel had a, a long and troubling history of grumbling, which led Moses to refer to Israel as a crooked and perverse generation, the very term that Paul uses in the next verse. And Paul also, uh, as we read this morning in 1 Corinthians 10, makes reference to the story of Korah in Numbers 16. So he's drawing our attention to the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness. Now, I want to reflect on what Paul's doing with this, and, and you might find it useful to turn back to number 16 and sort of see what, uh, what, Paul, what Paul's drawing on as he reflects on don't grumble, don't, quite, don't dispute. Because God had brought Israel out of Egypt through his servants Moses and Aaron. But in the wilderness, Korah and 250 other leaders grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And their, their allegation, their claim is, since the entire congregation was holy, any leader should be allowed to offer incense before the Lord. You'll, you'll notice that oftentimes, oftentimes grumbling starts with a valid premise. I mean, all the congregation is holy. That's a, that's a valid premise. That's a good point. This is what God himself had said. But does that mean that therefore anybody should be allowed to offer incense? Notice Moses' response. Rather than just overrule Korah, Moses challenges Korah to a sort of contest. Korah and his followers would offer incense, and Aaron would offer incense, and they would let God determine who was in the right. But you'll notice that Moses here is, is so confident in God's call that he wasn't afraid of the challenge from Korah. He recognized that his authority came from God, and so God would vindicate him. He was not... He did not need to vindicate himself. God had promised that he would be with Moses, and so he would deliver Israel through Moses, and so Moses trusted God. So they, the next day they, they gather before the tabernacle to see how will the Lord respond. And the wrath of the Lord was kindled against Korah and his followers. These men had seen God's mighty acts, 
They had heard his law from his servant Moses. They had seen the the Red Sea parted. They had eaten the manna. They had seen God provide water from the rock. And yet they still grumbled against Moses and Aaron. So God commanded all those who believed in him to move away from Korah, and then he opened the ground, and Korah and his followers were destroyed. Now, if you look towards the end of the chapter, you notice that even then, the Israelites grumbled again that ah, Moses and Aaron have caused these deaths. And so God sent a plague, which killed 14,000 more Israelites. And this is just one of the incidents. There were many times when the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, but as the Lord says, not just against Moses and Aaron. God said in Numbers 14 that when the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron, they were really grumbling against God because they were refusing to follow the ones that God had appointed. Because what, what Moses was showing and what Paul is drawing on is that grumbling is actually idolatry because it places your selfish wants and desires above others and not just above others, but even over God himself because it indicates that you think you know better than God. And now, it's, this is where, over the years, we've, we've seen it's really important to distinguish between grumbling and complaining. A complaint is bringing a, a concern to one who is in a position to do something about it. Grumbling, on the contrast, is, is either when we just sort of gossip about things, or when we put our own interests ahead of others, and we have such confidence in our own rightness that we're willing to run over others in order to achieve our goals. It's actually really easy, if you think about it, to sympathize with Korah. I've often found this, that the, the bad guys in the story oftentimes have, you're like, wait a second. He says, oh, the whole assembly is holy. And he was right. But in his pride and arrogance, he drew a false conclusion from a true premise. And that's where he went wrong. And if you looked at the story of the Exodus, God deals with his people very gently in their initial, in their initial complaints, grumbles. Which one is it at first? And the way God deals with them is very gentle. He doesn't smack them down. I mean, the reason why you get this here by number 16 is because over the, over the year that they were before this, there had been lots of times when Israel had, okay, you could argue complained at first, Maybe, maybe, <laughs> but, and God dealt with them gently. They were thirsty. He gave them water. They were hungry. He gave them food. He answered their complaints, and that should have taught them a pattern of, ah, when we have a complaint, we should come to the Lord. But they didn't learn. Instead, they, they don't learn to complain well. Instead, they keep grumbling, and they do not put the interests of others ahead of their own. Where do we tend to grumble? Do you grumble about your spouse, your parents, your children, your work, your boss? Do you tend to question God's wisdom and providence? I mean, there's a big difference between pouring out your complaint to God. Oh God, I don't know what you're doing. And grumbling. Oh God, you don't know what you're doing. There's a big difference there. And it's no wonder that just before his death in Deuteronomy 32, Moses prophesied that it would be said of Israel, they have acted corruptly toward the Lord. To their shame, they are no longer his children, but a perverse and crooked generation. Indeed, 
that, so Moses says that about Israel, that Israel becomes a crooked and perverse generation. And indeed, uh, in Matthew 17, our Lord Jesus refers to the, to, the, to the Jews as a perverse and unbelieving generation. The Jews, in keeping with their infamous ancestors, were now grumbling against Jesus. Here is the Son of God who was not merely a servant in the house like Moses, but was a son with authority over the house. Yet they grumbled against him. And he reminded them of Israel's experience in the desert, warning that those who grumble receive God's judgment. Once again, God's people who were supposed to be the light of the world, were supposed to be the pure and blameless children of God, refused to to listen and became a crooked and perverse generation. And so this is the sort of the backdrop and the setting in Philippians 2 when Paul commands the Philippians to do all things without grumbling or disputing because he recognizes we have a tendency to grumble and dispute. And that's where it's imp- I think it really should be translated disputing, not questioning, because this has the sense of, of disputing, debating, not just asking questions. So when he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, he's not saying, sit down and shut up. He's reminding us to walk the path of humility that he outlined at the beginning of the chapter. Have this same mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that is yours in Christ Jesus. And although Paul is using the Israelites of Moses' day as a warning to the Philippians, he also provides a twist. You'd expect to say, Paul, uh, uh, Paul to say, If you're grumbling, then you are the crooked and perverse generation. But instead, he calls them to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Something has changed. The Israelites in the wilderness were a crooked and perverse generation. But Paul does not see the Philippians as a crooked and perverse generation, despite the fact that it would appear from this that they may have been doing some grumbling and disputing. But rather, he says, you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So what's happened? Well, Pentecost has happened. In Acts 2, Peter preaches his first sermon and urges the crowd to be saved from this perverse generation. Same language. The church has been called out of this perverse generation to become pure and radiant children of God, shining brilliantly in a fallen and sinful world. But how can we, who are sinful grumblers and disputers, shine brilliantly? Well, as Paul has just told us in Philippians 2, it is because Christ Jesus, the one who was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself nothing, took the form of a servant. He lived a perfectly righteous life, obedient to the point of death on a cross. And through that obedience, through that death, He has joined us to himself that we might become children of God. Because of his perfect obedience, because of his atoning death on the cross, God has exalted him so that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And because we have been united to him, both in his his death and in his resurrection, we now shine as lights in the world. Through his ascension to the Father, through his sending of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has established his kingdom on earth. When Jesus walked this earth, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the church is is an outpost, a, a colony of that kingdom. And wherever the church goes, wherever 
his people go, wherever we go, there is his rule established. And this is what Paul said in verses 12 and 13, when he commands us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And what is his good pleasure? That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess. Because he has established his kingdom in you, you shine as lights in the world. What what does that mean, to shine as lights in the world? Well, think in terms of a dark night away from the the city with not a cloud in the sky. The blackness of midnight is pierced with thousands of pricks of light. This is what you are. The kingdom of God has come into the midst of the darkness and depravity of our world, and the children of God now blaze as stars in the night sky. That's what we are called to be. That's who we are in Christ. You shine as brilliant lights. Now, why does Paul say that you shine? If you, if we look at ourselves honestly, we probably feel more like grumbling Israelites than shining stars. But Paul says that you are shining as lights in the world. You shine because Jesus shines. By his perfect obedience, Jesus has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And now he is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. John Calvin says this well. Therefore, as we ourselves, when we have been engrafted in Christ, are righteous in God's sight, because our iniquities are covered by Christ's sinlessness, so our works are righteous and are thus regarded, because whatever fault is otherwise, because whatever fault is otherwise in them, is buried in Christ's purity and is not charged to our account. Accordingly, we can deservedly say that by faith alone, not only we ourselves, but also our works are justified. By faith alone, not only we ourselves, but our works are justified. You shine not because of anything in you, but because Christ has joined you to himself. His glory now shines in you and through you because you have been engrafted into him. But how? How do we shine? As we've seen, we shine with the same mind, the same humility that was in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to beware because as the rebellion of Korah warns us, it's very easy to deceive ourselves through our selfish and grumbling hearts. We may latch onto something and say, ah, this is... And just like Korah... All the congregation is holy, therefore. And we allow our hearts and minds to be shaped by our crooked and perverse generation rather than the mind that was in Christ Jesus and is ours in him. And when this happens, when we allow our hearts and minds to be shaped by our crooked and perverse generation, then the church begins to look like the culture until she loses her purity and has nothing to say to the culture and can no longer shine. This is what's happened in the mainline churches, and it too easily happens even in evangelical churches. We live in an age where we are constantly pressured to focus our desires on our own wants. We are bombarded with images that tantalize our eyes with the pleasure and happiness which can be yours if you only buy our product or follow our social media page or whatever. 
and we've bought into the lie. We want bigger, we want better, we want more. And so we live as full-blown consumers. We live as totally sold out and sold into our, our culture. And we can even convince ourselves that we're doing this for the glory of God and the advancement of his kingdom. But in fact, the kingdom that really matters to us is our own. And that's why we need to pay attention to Paul's exhortation in verse 16. How can you shine? Holding fast to the word of life. The way that you shine, the way that you are different from the world around you is because you hold fast to the word of life. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in the midst of the darkness that surrounds you, you shine because your life is characterized by the mind of Christ, the attitude of humility and holiness that we saw last time. And the way that you know the content, the the beliefs and practices that should characterize you is by knowing the word of God and living accordingly. And as we've seen already throughout Philippians and throughout all the scriptures, holding fast to the word of life is something that we do together. If you're struggling, if you're trying to figure out, how can I do this? Then dig in to Bible studies, shepherding groups. It's not something we're going to figure out on our own, by ourselves. We weren't designed to be lone rangers. Indeed, the the participle here, holding fast, is plural. You know, the way that we hold fast to the Word of God is by holding fast together. The way that we live the Christian life is by living the Christian life together, walking together. It's been a great joy to have three families living within walking distance of our house because you know, we, we gather together every morning, every Monday morning for morning prayer at the Kaler house. We have our shepherding group on Thursdays and throughout the week we often see each other and can encourage each other through the, the little things of life. But whether, whether you're close enough to walk or not, the church always needs to be a place where we are building strong community and always with the focus of drawing others into that community. Because if we're committed to studying the Word of God together, to putting it into practice together, then we'll have different priorities than those around us. Such as, well, first of all, the the Word of Life will be at the center of our life together. What Scripture teaches will be at the heart of our communal life as the people of God. Because the point is that not just to know the Word of Life, but to hold fast the Word of Life. So you need to know it. If you don't know, if you don't know the scriptures, you can't hold them very easily. Holding on to them. You know, if, this is where um, somebody made the comment yesterday about what's the, what's the one thing they miss or regret most. Well, I didn't memorize the scriptures as well as I should have. Memorizing the Word of God, holding fast to it, requires you to know it. But knowing it is not enough by itself. Knowing it must also and always result in doing it. And, and then notice the reason why Paul says this. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that on the day of Christ, his pride, his honor as an apostle, will be affected by their performance. Now, we've already heard him say that his salvation depends in part on their prayers. I know that by the Spirit of God and by your prayers, this will work out for my salvation. But Paul is saying that he wants them to understand your actions, 
how they hold fast to the word of life or not, will have a bearing on Paul's experience at the final judgment. Now, notice Paul is not saying that his salvation or damnation depends on their performance. No, he says, my honor, my pride, that on the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. When Paul gives an account for his apostleship before Christ, the fruit of his labor will be on display. And he says, you Philippians, you're part of that. And Paul says that if they turn out well, if they hold fast to the word of Christ, then he will be proud on that day that he did not run or labor in vain. And there's a flip side to that. Because if they do not hold fast to the word of God, then that will be evidence that at least in this case, Paul labored in vain. Notice, he's, he's not saying that it will be his fault if they turn out poorly. After all, they are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. So it's not, it's not Paul saying that, sort of like, oh, obviously I failed. That, that's actually not his point. His point is that your performance has, has reflects upon those who are your leaders. I know, we don't like to say that. We're all, we're all nice, good American individualists. Nobody has any effect on anybody else. Yeah, right. No, but it's true. I mean, we, we, we may not like to admit it, but Paul says it's true, and so we better believe it. Because what's Paul doing here? Many commentators have pointed out that Philippians is the only epistle where Paul addresses not just the church, but also he, he, he to the bishops and deacons. So he seems to be saying these things about himself in order to get the church to think about their own bishops and deacons. It's certainly the idea that Hebrews thirteen seventeen gives us. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so it's entirely appropriate for me and for all your elders to desire that you should hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ we may be proud that we did not run in vain or labor in vain. How you turn out does not determine my eternal destiny. But how you turn out does affect our honor on the day of Christ. And again, American individualists don't like to hear this, but when the chief shepherd calls forth the shepherds, when he bids me make an accounting of my ministry, what will he say when all of you appear before him? Oh, I, I know he'll say a few things about to me like, oh, how you spoke to that one was not very helpful. Uh, why didn't you go in search of that one? You really should. I, I know, I got there's, there's all that on me. But I take comfort in Paul's attitude toward all this because you'll notice he doesn't go all morbid and introspective. He doesn't waste time wondering whether he did everything he could. Rather, look, look, at, where, look at where he goes with it. Verse 17. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Think about the imagery here. He sees the faith of the Philippians. He sees your faith as this sacrificial offering, the, the living sacrifice of Romans 12.1. 
and he sees himself as a drink offering that is poured out on the sacrifice. So, see what's going on here. The faith of the Philippians is a sacrificial offering, literally a sacrifice and service. The, the word translated offering here is the word from which we get our word liturgy. If, if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial liturgy of your faith, the idea is that the life of faith, this practical holding fast to the word of life, is a sacrificial liturgy, a living sacrifice, a life devoted in worship and service to God. It's part of the reason why I encourage you to, to think of our Sunday liturgy and apply it in your daily practice. Our Sunday practice of confessing our sins is to be a daily practice in our lives. Our Sunday practice of hearing the word should be reflected as we read the scriptures and meditate on them in our, in our homes. Our Sunday prayers should be re-echoed in our daily practice. Indeed, even, even our communion at the Lord's table should be expressed in our communion with one another throughout the week. All of these things that we do corporately together on Sunday are things that we do individually and in and, and families in our homes in a, in, a, in a similar way. The life of faith is truly a holding fast the word of life when it becomes a, a daily practice of the sacrificial liturgy of your faith. And Paul says that he, he looks forward to being poured out as a drink offering in that liturgy. Now, again, thinking about what Paul's doing here, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice. He is all the sacrifices of the Old Testament bound into one. And the life of faith is a life of participation in and imitation of Christ as we humble ourselves and seek not our own interests, but the interests of others. And Paul is a drink offering. What was the purpose of the drink offering? Why was the drink offering poured out? Well, the drink offering... Well, the purpose of, of wine generally. Wine which makes glad the heart of man, Psalm 104. And that's the imagery that he uses here of this joyful drink offering. That his martyrdom, as he, he expects that he will probably face that in the near future, his martyrdom should not be considered an atoning sacrifice. His martyrdom should be considered a drink offering poured out upon the offering of your faith. He is not a substitute for someone else. Rather, his death in imitation of Christ will be a drink offering, an occasion for rejoicing. Indeed, when you read the martyrdom of Polycarp from a, a generation or so later, the, the death of Polycarp is portrayed in that very similar way as being that rejoice, and the, the people of, of, the, the, of his church are rejoicing in his being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice of their faith. And so Paul says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So why, why, should, we, and, you know, re, why should we rejoice at his impending death? Well, back to what we saw a couple weeks ago, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when your heart's cry is to live is Christ, to die is gain, then and only then does the humility of Christ take root in your heart. Now, I must say that I've been very impressed with how little you seem to grumble. You are a, you're, you're, you're a very good congregation at complaining and, and asking good questions. So, yeah, com complaining and questioning, good. Grumbling and disputing, bad. But, you know, sort of... But that's where we also need to be careful because... 
there can be a situation where the, uh, the, the peace, uh, peace and harmony can be a fruit of the Spirit. It also can be a mutual comfortability agreement. I'll promise to preach interesting, thought-provoking sermons as long as you promise to ni- say nice things about them and nobody really expects anything to happen. That's where things go wrong. May it never be that we just comfortably float along, holding fast the word of life, holding forth the word of life, means that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Are we prepared to live it? Are we prepared to shine as lights in the midst of a darkening world, holding forth and holding fast to the word of life? Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, have mercy. Have mercy and help us because we we too often grumble, we too often dispute, we too often don't hear your word and put it into practice. Help us to be those who hear your word and believe your word and live holding forth and holding fast to the word of life that we might run and labor fruitfully in your kingdom. Lord, have mercy and and grant that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is you who works in us both to will and to do according to your good pleasure. So we pray that you would continue the work that you've begun in Jesus Christ, that you would continue your work in us, that we might be brought to that day uh, when we might behold your face. Father, help us and have mercy upon us and, and be with those, Lord, who are who are suffering and afflicted. Be with those who, who struggle and are and are in in difficulty of, of mind and heart and body. Lord, be gracious to them and shine the light of your countenance upon them and grant to them your peace. Help us as we draw near to you that we might draw near in hearts full of faith, trusting that trusting that you will continue to Send forth your word and work by your spirit that we might be conformed more and more to the likeness of your son, our Lord Jesus. And as we come to this, your table, we pray that you would strengthen us and help us and feed us that we might, that we might be yours, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.